Well, I love Christmas. I don't know about you. I love it because uh, it's a uh, great um, break in the middle of um, the winter. I love the food. I love mince pies. I love um, mulled wine even better than Christmas Day. I think I love Boxing Day food with uh, bubble and squeak and cold meat. I love um, gentle evenings by the fire. I love singing carols. I love family gatherings. I'm, I'm totally bowled over by Christmas. I love it. But Christmas has its problems as well sometimes. Even in the best of families there are tensions and those tensions uh, so often are brought to the fore at Christmas. Large gatherings of family all under one roof is often a recipe for fireworks. Children squabble over presents. Adults find old wounds reopened. Auntie Mabel is uh, grumbling again. Um, and so on it goes. If you want to see the dysfunctional side of a family, then be a fly on the wall when they gather at Christmas. I have to say as well that uh, my observation and the observation of many, many other pastors is that that dysfunctionality in society generally is growing. I'm sure there are all sorts of uh, reasons uh, for that. But there is little doubt that uh, as each generation goes by, at the moment at least, seems people have, have less ability to cope with all of the uh, stresses and strains of family life. Less ability to damp down the flames. And so uh, family tensions disintegrate into family fractures again and again. We only need to look at the rise in the divorce rate and see how many of those divorces, uh, divorce suits are filed after Christmas to know that that is true. Dysfunctional families are not new, though. Dysfunctional families have been with us ever since Adam and Eve's eldest brother Cain murdered his younger brother Abel. And uh, uh, early on in the story of the Bible, we find family problem after family problem after family problem. The last 13 chapters of Genesis then are uh, the culmination of a story which has been growing throughout Genesis of dysfunctional families. This time, it's the family of Jacob and of his um, twelve sons. The story in these last 13 chapters particularly focuses on one son, Joseph. This family surely has problems to rank with any family story we are likely to be. They are what today is called a blended family. There are four mothers in this, uh, uh, in this household. One mother actually is dead. Another one, we are told repeatedly, is hated by her husband. And the other two mothers are actually not properly married to the father. Two of the sons are murderers. One is a sex offender. And there is a sister there as well who's been raped. And all that before the story even gets going in earnest. 
Think your family is dysfunctional, meet Jacob's. But this is not just a story of family trauma. It is the story, actually, of God disciplining and maturing and preserving this family so that through them, actually, many, many others can be blessed. Indeed, God's plan is ultimately through this family. All nations will be blessed. So often think that uh, family trauma and the family dysfunction automatically cuts us off from being useful to God. Not in the Bible. There is a lot that needs to happen very often. But the Bible again and again portrays family stories which end in triumph because God is with them. And only over the next few weeks we're going to see one of those triumphs. The triumph of God working in the family of Jacob. But this week we must spend some time in chapter 37 actually starting to see quite how dysfunctional this family is and the consequences that flow from that. Our author introduces us here in some detail to Jacob's family. And the first thing that uh, we need to see very clearly is this is an unhappy family. There's Joseph um, tending the flocks with his brothers in verse 2 who were the sons of Bilhar and Zilpah, his father's wives. But he brings a bad report to their father about them. Joseph is a spoilt brat. His brothers are older than him. He's only 17. And uh, so he ought to owe them some respect. But the brothers are the daughters of these sort of um, lesser wives, these concubines. And so they don't really have a proper status in the family. They are like poor, unfortunate stepchildren brought into uh, a family, but never quite feeling that they are fully children of this mum and, uh, and this dad, to use a modern analogy. And Joseph is absolutely determined to make sure that they know that, that they know their place. He brings this, this bad report about them. Al- almost certainly that is actually a false report. Everywhere else in the Old Testament where a bad report occurs, it's a, it's a lie. So he's not just telling tales, he's actually lying. He's actually embroidering the truth. Has Joseph's behaviour come from nowhere? Is he he just intrinsically a, a, a sinful little boy? Well, actually no. It stems as much as anything from his father's Foolish favouritism, verse 3. Israel, that's uh, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. Jacob um, pampers this younger younger son, Joseph. To expand a bit from what what the um, author tells us, um, 
we need to uh, uh, remember. Joseph's not quite the youngest. Benjamin is the, is the youngest. But he is actually the oldest son of Jacob's true love, Rachel. Rachel he adored. And Rachel is now dead. So Jacob has transferred all of that affection now onto her firstborn son. He gives Joseph this, uh, this richly ornamented robe, this bright... Um, Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber's insistence, we don't know whether it was red and olive and yellow and ochre and purple and all the rest of this, but, but um, we know what its focus was, what its purpose was. It's a royal robe. It is a robe worn by the son and heir. Joseph, though he's almost the youngest of these twelve brothers, He's going to inherit his father's estate. And his father parades that before all the, all, all the sons. Then he wonder the brothers are angry. Verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. You know, I, I, I've seen that sort of favouritism, sometimes in the grossest of forms. I've seen a son showered with presents while the other one hardly had anything. I have uh, more often seen it a little bit more subtly. I remember the um, radio presenter, John Peel, confessing once that I think actually at Christmas they had played a family game of his invention. He decided that it would be fun for the family each to secretly write down the name of the favourite in the family and put it in a hat. When they um, uh, opened all the uh, secret notes, it turned out that every one of them had written their daughter's name, not a game to play. It's not um, difficult either to spot character traits in adults who have been treated as the favourite or who have felt unloved. The egotistical person who thinks the world revolves around them and is slightly shocked and annoyed when they discover it doesn't. The bitter personality who always feels hard done by. The despondent person who really is sure that they're worthless and nobody's interested in them. My parents here, we need to be careful, very careful, because mistakes of that sort can cause great harm. And these mistakes that we are seeing being worked out in this chapter actually didn't originally um, come just from Jacob. The um, 
uh, hatred that there is between these brothers is firstly a mirror of the hatred that there was between uh, Leah and Rachel, two sisters both married to Jacob, both hating each other. But in turn, the way, the way that Jacob had behaved, both to uh, their mothers and to them, stemmed from the fact that he grew up in a family that exercised favouritism. We're told very clearly that uh, Jacob's mother, Rebekah, loved him, and Jacob's father, Isaac, loved Jacob's brother, Esau, and the family was split down the middle and disputing from the start. Or go back to Isaac's childhood. Isaac, Jacob's uh, father, very early on, is found locked in conflict with a half-brother, Ishmael. And Abraham, their father, is very weak and ineffectual in dealing with it. The Bible often says, you know, that God deals with families down to the third and the fourth or the fourth generation. And uh, my observation is that uh, uh, that is partly at least simply through the networks of pat- and, and patterns of behaviour that echo down through those generations. My unscientific observation that there are, is that there are often recognisable patterns of family behaviour that do go back three or four generations if you uh, sit down and think about it. We are the product of our history. But immediately let me say that one of the wonderful gospel promises is that actually those patterns and consequences can be broken for Christians. It was one of the central elements of the new covenant that Jeremiah looked forward to, for instance. In chapter 31 of Jeremiah, um, uh, Uh, He says, in those days people will no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, Jeremiah is saying there's a saying that the children experience the consequences of the parents' uh, uh, failures. But for gospel people, that will not be the case. Gospel people will not have to endure all the consequences of their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents' actions. Because gospel people are promised the Holy Spirit, indwelling in their heart. They are promised that they are adopted now into a new family, into the family of God, with God as their perfect father. They are promised that they now have a friend and brother in Jesus Christ who lived an absolutely perfect life. And in this new family, the the problems of the old family can be severed. They can be broken. But it is not automatic. Seems to me one of our great tasks as believers 
if we are believers here this morning, is by the Spirit who leads us into all truth to seek to understand the patterns of behaviour and thought that we have inherited and to measure them against Scripture and the example of Christ. And then, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, by the Spirit, with the Spirit's insight and power, by the Spirit, to put to death the deeds of the body, to put to death those sinful things, those painful and damaging things that we have inherited. so that we live. Our status as Christians enables us to break free from that damaging pattern, set of uh, behaviours that echoes down through the generations. Joseph is about to be hit by an avalanche and that avalanche has been building since at least his grandfather's childhood and in your life too, if it is unexamined, if it is untouched by the Spirit of God, you too will be building up an avalanche that will one day descend. In our fallen world, That is what happens by nature. An unhappy family then, but it's worse than unhappy. Rapidly it becomes a broken family. Joseph has two dreams about which we'll briefly say a little more in a moment, but for the moment we just need to notice that they indicate broadly that... um, what Jacob has already signalled, in fact, that uh, Joseph is going to be the leader. Verse 6, listen to this, says Joseph. I had a dream. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my my sheep rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down. And true to form, Joseph uh, parades this to his brother. And uh, it's not at all surprising that uh, the um, brothers are filled with fury. From this moment on, the uh, story reads, it reads like a film. Or, um, or perhaps you watch Casualty on, uh, on Saturday nights. You know in Casualty, when Casualty starts and you see all these little different storylines happening, you know that a calamity is going to happen to all the people, don't you? You're just waiting for it to happen. Well, the scene has been set in that way in Joseph's life now. Calamity is going to occur. Verse 12. The brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel, that's Jacob, said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send, them to, send you to them. Very well, he replied. 
and you think, no, Joseph, no. Just say, uh, Dad, my amazing Technicolor dream coat will get dirty out with the sheep. Can't I stay at home? Don't go. Or why didn't Jacob say, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks at Shechem. Let's have a beer and watch the footy. But no, off Joseph goes to Shechem. He gets to Shechem and he can't find his brothers. Verse 15. Joseph arrived at Shechem and a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? And we long for the answers, uh, man's answer to be, no idea, mate. And Joseph decides to go home. But no, he knows, he's seen. Verse 17. They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. And the, the, the sinister music in the film score is getting louder, you see. Joseph finally sees his brother, brothers in the distance and um, um, just like a film the scene suddenly switches from, uh, from Joseph to them verse 19 here comes that dreamer they said to each other come now let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him then we'll see what comes of his dreams and cue the speech by Reuben the responsible eldest brother who says no we're not going to do that. Verse 21. Reuben heard this. He tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert. Don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. Well, Reuben, you may have wanted to do that, but you were pretty ineffectual. Let's not kill him. What sort of responsible response is that of the elder brother? And so the brutality begins, verse 23. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, took him and threw him into the system. Now the system was empty, there was no water in it. It begins. Judah has cold feet about the murder and suggests selling him as a slave, which is something of a compensation. Reuben is turned into a uh, gibbering wreck, but no one actually stands up and says, stop this madness. We're destroying ourselves as a family. So Joseph is sold as a slave. His brothers for the rest of their lives effectively will be brutalised by their behaviour and the, the weight of their terrible secret. And Jacob, whose favouritism caused all the problems in the, uh, uh, in the first place, loses by one of those terrible but perfect twists of fate, or is it God's providence? loses the very thing that he had paraded as most precious to him. Verse 34. 
Then Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. And you know, I could repeat that story basically again and again and again and again. I could tell you about the stepdaughter who was cruelly treated by her stepmother, actually um, um, not cared for by her ineffectual father. And, And now, today, she has a slightly ineffectual husband and she is cruelly treating her own children. And they hate her. Or I could tell you about the woman who, on the contrary, showered affection on her children and self-consciously marginalised her husband so that the son that that, uh, um, she raised could never find a wife who was prepared to give him the care and attention that he'd become convinced he deserved. He's single. Or I could tell you a hundred stories in Oxford about high-achieving parents who have children who grow up believing that they've just never quite made the grade. I went um, uh, as an undergraduate to uh, Cambridge and there I met more people who considered themselves to be failures than I'd ever met amongst my friends who were farmers' sons in Devon. I couldn't believe it. And I could continue for hours. In their natural state, families are like mountain slopes, slowly accumulating layer upon layer of snow until the avalanche. They are like engines in which the throttle is stuck open so that each cycle of ignition leads to the engine rotating just a little bit faster and another ignition and gets faster and faster and faster until something has to break. They are like a great dam of sin and pain with no healthy outflow that just rises and rises and rises and rises until one day the walls have to break. Let me appeal to you Help the snow to melt healthily. Cut off the fuel to the engine. Clear the safety channel that lets the water flow away. God can do that for you if you are a Christian here this morning. God's Holy Spirit can help you to see what goes wrong. He can help you to overcome those patterns of behaviour. He can soften your heart. He can forgive you and he can help you to give forgiveness. He can break the pattern. 
without that intervention, somewhere along the line, perhaps not in your life, perhaps it will build for generations, but somewhere along the line, what happened to Joseph and his family will happen to yours. Genesis 37 is a warning to us. Because this is a family without God. That is the key thing that we've hinted at and we now must focus on here with clarity. It is actually a stunning thing about chapter 37 of the book of Genesis. God never appears. This is the chosen family. This is the family through whom God has explicitly said he will bless the world. If this family were alive today, they'd be here. Jacob would be there sitting bolt upright with his wives next to him. His twelve sons dressed smartly and arrayed before him. Only those who knew the family would know the reality. Several times, this story longs for the family to turn to God. Joseph has these dreams. We learn later that Joseph has realised that a repeated dream, in particular, means to indicate that God has determined this and it is irrevocable. Joseph twice has these dreams about him being elevated and the others bowing down and the story just cries out for someone to see beyond the arrogance of this silly young man, beyond the anger of these older brothers, beyond the foolish favouritism of Jacob, to see beyond all of those things and to say, what does God mean about to say in this? And it never happens. You know, when the brothers plot Joseph's fate, why doesn't someone speak with more uh, clarity than Reuben, with more determination than Judah? Why doesn't someone say effectively what Joseph will say in two chapters' time when he faces Potiphar's wife? How could we do such a wicked thing and sin against God? But God gets no mention. Reuben is terrified of facing his father. but not of facing the heavenly father who is furious if any one of his sons is mistreated. For all their apparent status as God's chosen people, this family are all practical atheists. Disaster comes upon them, says the story, because they just never turn to God. But God is there. God is there giving Joseph those dreams. God is there making sure that Joseph is not actually murdered. 
but thrown into slavery. God is there despite the uh, um, weaknesses of this family and God was there for his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather. God saw all that was happening in this family and he kept his sovereign hand on them. Yes, they must uh, live with the consequences of their sin. But no, God has not been thwarted. If you are a believer here today, then whatever consequences you are conscious of that you live with today as a result of your history, your family history. If you are a believer here, you have the personal promise of Jesus. Surely I am with you. All you need to do is turn to him to start seeing how he can shape those experiences into something profoundly good. I could could take you to to countless situations where God has done that self-evidently. I I could take you to the, um, uh, the neglected child of absentee parents who uh, sent him to school where he was bullied. And I could show you the ministry that he's had to thousands, especially of asylum seekers, who know what it means to be bullied by a state. Or I could take you to the son of an alcoholic father who has actually been so overwhelmed with the father love of God that he has become a very, very effective evangelist and hundreds have become Christians through his ministry. Possibly thousands. Or I could take you to uh, the childless couple who are involved in uh, business and I could let you perhaps hear the husband say as he said to me I realise God has given me my employees to replace my children no wonder so many of his employees have become Christians God intended it for good God intended it for good. I could take you to the relatively recent grave of a uh, wife who was deserted by her husband I think more than 50 years ago now. She had to uh, spend the rest of her life raising her children alone. She also devoted all the rest of her years to teaching in the Sunday school. 
we could probably gather hundreds of people around her grave who were blessed by her in her Sunday school teaching. But more than that, I could gather you her children. They were leaders in their churches, all of them. I could gather you her grandchildren. I can't remember how many there are now, but I think nearly every single one of them, if not everyone, is a Christian, and most of them leaders. Missionary, pastor, leaders. And the great-grandchildren are doing pretty well. God intended it for good. God takes these experiences and if we let him in, if we let him do his ministry in our hearts, he creates incredible good. And I long to be able to take people to you And show them how God shaped you. And shaped your difficult experiences for good. That is where Joseph's life is heading. He will say to his brothers years from then, when he's reunited with them, you intended it for harm, but God intended it for good the saving of many lives. And that story has been repeated again and again and again thousands, tens of thousands, millions of times in God's world. The story takes its first positive turn actually just a couple of chapters on in chapter 39 verse 1. No, verse 2. where our author says, as Joseph languishes as a slave in Egypt, the Lord was with Joseph. If you're not a believer here this morning, then let me say to you, there is no more precious thing than to be able to say, the Lord is with me. And if you commit your life to Christ, then you will be able to say that. And if you are a believer here this morning, then let me say to you, that is the most precious thing you could hear. And you have the right to hear it because Jesus said it himself. I am with you always to the very end of the age. And that turns misery to triumph. Will you live with that as the most precious truth of your life?